Welcome to the premiere episode of Super Entertainment Presents the Television Crossover Universe on the Grand Gignol Network, which I probably just slaughtered. Uh, coming to you from Castle Wolfenstein, hosted by the TVCU crew. In the studio tonight, via Skype, we have co-host James Boyachuk, CEO of 18th Wall Productions. And I am Robert E. Ronsky, Jr., author of the Horror Crossover Encyclopedia. We are the TVCU crew. What is the television crossover universe, you ask? Well, when I was a wee boy, I started noticing that certain television shows were connected by crossovers. I started keeping track of those connected series in my little notebook. Over time, I realized that these crossover connections went far beyond television to other mediums as well. I also started to learn that what I had originally seen as separate groupings of shared realities started to come together in one larger world, which I had dubbed the television crossover universe. Five years ago, I turned my years of notes and lots and lots of notebooks into a website. And a year ago, I started publishing books based on those crossover finds. This podcast is another means to celebrate those writers whose work adds to the expansion of the shared fictional reality. So, James, uh, I would like to welcome you to our our first episode as our co-host. Thank you. I would like to say a little bit of James. James and I have worked together for a long time uh, in collaborations. We first met each other in a Yahoo discussion group on the Walt Newton universe where we took it upon ourselves to form a subgroup of a, a book club there um, which caught on for a while and uh, then we decided we were going to make our own website uh, but we had differing ideas on where we wanted to go and uh, went in different directions and somehow those, uh, those ideas like re-merged uh, James is now uh, yes. a regular contributor to uh, to the website. Uh, those damn ponies, uh, <laughs> w- yeah. His, his My Little Pony uh, blog like doubled our viewers. The joke blog, yeah. The joke, blog. right? Is it right. April first joke blog. And yeah. What does it do? It gives us what three times what we currently had for our high. Yeah. Who who would have known the bronies? The bronies would be our fan base. Uh, you know, so uh, James went off and, and became a publisher, and so when I started uh, writing my first book, um, uh, they they were gracious enough to take me on as uh, as as one of their youngling writers, and uh, which I, am, I which I am deeply attributed to. I would say our other co-host who couldn't make it here for the premiere episode, um, Ivan Ronald Shabosky and James are like my uh, Spock and McCoy whenever it comes time to difficult decisions <laughs> in the world in the in the important world of crossover fiction i always turn to james and ivan uh so uh james uh i wanted to turn this over to you and ask you uh before we get started with our guest if there's any projects you're working on or anything you like to plug nothing okay that is not true i almost told a lie we just released in digital a collection i'm really excited for the Dragon Lord's Library. This is sort of a supplementary volume to a novel series we're doing now. And each of the stories in this book is presented as if it's a book from the library of one of the main characters. So it's this really cool sort of metafictional twist on what an anthology could be. And as the title indicates from the Dragon Lord's Library, it's all dragon stories or stories that somehow involve dragons. So it's a really neat thing that I'm excited for. There are two volumes out now. One is more adult stories, and one is completely child-friendly kiddie stories that anyone can read. So it's a really fun collection. I'm proud of it. And the print version should be coming out 
in a couple of days. And the really fun part is that we actually, this is a supplementary volume to one of our series, right? right? Well, we actually have a short story in there that's part of another series that will be coming out in March. So they're meeting unofficially in this sort of anthology. Sweet. I, I guess say 18th, well, I mean, it's, it's probably a little self-promotion because you guys did publish the horror crossover encyclopedia, and I hope that someday you will publish another one of my books. Um, but, We're hoping to. But you guys, uh, you guys put out a lot of really cool stuff. Um, a lot of the anthologies that you guys have put out um, have, have been awesome. Um, yeah, so uh, I'm really be proud to be part of that family. Um, you know, I, mm-hmm. I've met a lot of really cool writers that I've collaborated with um, through that as well. Um, so it's it's really good to have you on this show as well. Um, you know, like I said, you're, you're I'm not gonna I never never revealed if you're the Spock or the McCoy, and I never will. <laughs> but, <laughs> but but I really I really appreciate your your input all the time. Um, I am also working on a, a few things. Of course, the the horror crossover encyclopedia, um, you know, is still out and uh, still available for sale, and it makes a great Christmas present. Um, also, a Christmas present, yeah. Because you know, some people like to decide: did they get me a good present or not, based on how much it weighs. And this thing, you could kill someone with it. Yeah, 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 you, yeah. You could you could really take someone out. It's a thick book. Um, it's also available for Kindle if you if you have back problems, um, and, <laughs> and uh, also I, I do have um, a self published book, um, Television Crossover Universe, Worlds and Mythology, Volume One, which is now finally out in paperback. Um, my first self published book. I, I I will honestly admit it's not as good as the horror crossover encyclopedia, uh, but it's still a lot of fun. Um, I basically took some ideas from the website and blew them up and expanded upon them. Um, so there's material in the book that is that is not on the website. Um, additionally, uh, for fun, I I did a character bio on my fictional counterpart Christopher Kowalski. Um, uh, character I created when I was six years old that I just constantly built his mythology, um, and I did that mostly so I could say he's finally published. Um, but it's a it's it's a lighter book, and uh, yeah, the first the the first the first timeline in there uh, pulls together um, how South Park, Simpsons, and Family Guy are all connected to the Flintstones, the Three Stooges. Abner Costello and Laurel and Hardy in one big family tree. Um, the second one is about Doctor Who and all the connections to the Doctor Who universe. And the third one, I focus on uh, DC Comics um, and the various crossovers that connect DC Comics to other mediums, television, film, novels, things like that. Um, um, you, can, you can find both of those on Amazon um, and um, other, other various places. I know because I Google myself a lot because I'm that kind of guy that it's really easy to Google horror crossover encyclopedia or television crossover universe and find those books. Um, I will say I am working on a volume two of World of Mythology, and I am also uh, currently watching every Family Guy episode in chronological order and taking painstaking notes because I am working on um, the cartoon crossover encyclopedia, which should be out maybe in a year 
I, I don't know, I've been kind of slacking on it. Um, uh, watching cartoons turns out to be hard sometimes too. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that, that is, that is our shameless plug segment, <laughs> which we will always start the show with. Um, we are going to take a break. When we come back, we will have our first guest, Simon R. Green, uh, which I am really excited for. And, um, we will um, come back in a moment. We are back. James, would you like to introduce our guest? I would love to. Tonight we have Simon R. Green, and he is one of my all-time favorite authors. Way back, back in high school, this is the author that pulled me out of some really nasty times, and I will forever be grateful for his drinking midnight wine and all it helped me through. But he is really a phenomenal author. New York Times bestseller. I've heard him credited as the father of modern urban fantasy, and he's responsible for some really well-known series that even if you don't dive into the fantasy section of Barnes & Noble, you've probably heard of, such as Hawk and Fisher, The Night Side, and Secret Histories, which are the Drew family novels. So, welcome aboard, Simon. Great to be here. And I will just start off with this question. I wish I could find the quote again. I spent an hour on Google trying to find it. So if this is misquoted, this whole question might go out the window. But in an interview a few years ago, if I'm remembering properly, you said you don't just see your novels and stories as being set in the same universe, but as pieces of a single ongoing story. If that's even close to what you said, could you elaborate on that? Pretty much. I, right from the beginning, I always thought, these are all my characters, so why shouldn't they meet each other? Why shouldn't they all, a character from one series, turn up in, a, in, in one of my other series? And as I went on through the years, gradually this, this background came together that they were all sort of heading towards somewhere, that there was a definite end in mind. And as I went along working my way through the various novels, I was jotting down ideas, jotting down various things that I thought I should be doing. And as I've continued to work, I'm slowly getting to the point where I think I'm almost ready to write what will be the big final book which will be essentially where everybody meets everyone and we find out what it's all been about. Not quite ready to write it yet. I'm still doing the research, but I have a definite aim, a definite end in mind. Okay, I'm excited. That's exciting. (laughs) That's really exciting. (laughs) Do you want to drop any spoilers or things we can look forward to? Well, basically, I think it's all going to come down to the fact that Essentially, you've got the two main threads. One is the night side, which is the gray area, the morally gray people who are sometimes good, sometimes bad. And on the other hand, you've got the druids, who basically just want everybody to play nice and do as they're told. So when these two worlds come together, you just know they're not going to get on. Now, one of the big mysteries of the night side was what's it all for? Um... The night side, I should explain for those who don't know. Essentially, the idea is that there's a hidden heart of London where it's always night, where it's always three o'clock in the morning and the hour that tries men's souls. 
It's the place that you go to when nobody else will have you. And this, in turn, came from watching a whole bunch of film noir. There was a season of film noir films on television. I was working away from And they were always set at night. They were always neon sign glowing like hell's candy. It was always rain on the pavements. The sun never rose. I thought, what if there was a place where it was always like that? And that's where the night side came from. And I suppose it's also fair to say the night side is based on London Soho. I was a student in London back in the 70s and I was doing my BA. And I was living in the East End of London, which was, I think it's fair to say, not so much a rough area, more like a demilitarized zone, really, really tough area. And I would go into Soho, which was not quite what it had been. Soho was at its height in the 50s and 60s. That's the legend of Soho, when, almost like in the uh, song 42nd Street, where the underworld meets the elite. You had show business, you had the, um, the villains like the Cray Brothers, you had um, writers, uh, film stars, singers, all of them together in this one area getting together. When I got there in the 70s, that was slowly winding down, but there was still enough of it left. There was still enough sin to go around if you knew where to look, and I was willing to look. And there were people still around who could tell you stories about the good old days, about the things that went on. So the night side, the characters, the setting, the feel and the tone were inspired by that period, that place, and the people I met and the, and the, uh, the stories I heard. Um, so you've got that side. Then you've got the Droods. Um, the Secret Histories were my attempt, having done one series based around the private eye, which is what the night side is. Right. It features John Taylor, a private eye who operates in the Twilight Zone, so I think cases of the weird and uncanny. So when I want to do another big series, I thought, what's the other big character of 20th century fiction? That's the secret agent, James Bond in particular. I was a huge fan of the original Ian Fleming novels. I was reading those before I was old enough to get into the cinema and see the films. And I still have a great fondness for those original novels. So I said, let's do a fantasy science fiction version of... The secret agent. So I came up with Shaman Bond, the very secret agent, who's part of a family, the Druids, have been around since roughly the 5th century. Druid obviously derives from Druid. And I thought there's a family who've been around all these centuries. Their job is to stand between humanity and all the things that threaten it. But down the centuries, they've eventually got the idea that only they know what's best for humanity and they are going to be in charge. And so if you put these two ideas together, you've got John Taylor, the iconoclast, the individual, you've got the Druids, which are the ultimate, we're in charge. These are the two separate ways of looking at the 20th century, and of course now the 21st. So when these two come together, it's not going to be a a team up. It's not gonna be the brave and the bold. It's not gonna be, uh, the Fantastic Four meets the X-Men. It's going to be a war. At some point, the Darudes are going to look at the night side and say, we've had enough, we're going to move into the night side in force, and we're going to shut them down. And of course, once that happens, this shit is going to hit the fan in no uncertain manner. And both sides will reach out for allies, which means every other character from every other series that I have ever written is going to get involved. 
even the more wow. extreme versions like um, Deathstalker. Deathstalker right. is my science fiction series. Um, this essentially came out of the fact that I saw the first Star Wars movie in the cinema when it first came out, and it absolutely blew me out of the water. I loved it. But let's be fair. There are things about the plot of Star Wars that really don't make much sense. I mean, here we are. We've got a rebel alliance. They've got starships. They've got armies. They've got guns. Where's all the funding coming from? <laughs> I mean, surely you haven't got people standing on street corners, rattling collecting tins, saying support the rebellion. I mean, Darth Vader would have more shot. <laughs> so I thought, okay, we're going to do a space opera. It's going to be inspired by Star Wars, but we'll start with one guy, our hero, Owen Destogger. He gets outlawed. He doesn't even know why. Suddenly, he's on the run. Everybody wants him dead. And he has to build a rebellion, person by person, place by place, to take on the Empire. And through a series of five, let's face it, very long books, we gradually show him take, building a rebellion, making political deals, raising funds, and putting together a rebellion. And at the end of the third book in the series, they get together and they take down the, the Iron Empress. They overthrow the evil empire. But that's not the end of the story. What happens next? Uh, and my inspiration here came from two things. One is the person you most want to help you win a war is often the least person you want to run the country afterwards. And what I had in mind was Winston Churchill, who was exactly what we needed during the war years. But the moment we had an election afterwards, nobody wanted him. And they brought in the Labour government, which is the exact opposite of everything that Churchill stood for. And secondly, I was inspired by a book which later became a film called Is Paris Burning? Towards the end of the Second World War, the Germans were basically blowing up most of Paris prior to leaving it before the Allies could get there. And the French uh, rebels who'd been fighting against the German occupation, there'd been six or seven different groups coming together. You had the communists, you had... Um, various democratic groups and so on, who were happy to fight cybertides against the Nazis. But the moment the Nazis left, they turned on each other. People who'd been fighting side by side and risking their lives together suddenly were all killing each other because whoever was in charge of Paris when the Allies arrived, the Allies would put them in charge, legitimize them, and move on. So the groups were fighting each other. So I thought all these groups who'd been working together under Owen Destalker and his friends would suddenly turn on each other to find out what was going to replace the Empire. And that was the next two books. So even characters from the Deathstalker series are going to end up in, mm. in this. I've already done this once where the Druid family had to go into the future to get one of their descendants to help them fight a particular battle. And it turned out to be Giles Deathstalker, who was one of the main characters in the Deathstalker series. Whereas in wow. the night side, um, our hero went to a particular club and saw a portrait on the wall of Owen Deathstalker. Now, I never explained that, but clearly he's passed through the night side at some point. Which the night side uh, can touch different times and dimensions. Exactly. And, the night side has doorways to everywhere. So anybody from any, at any point in history, past, present, and future, can turn up in the night side. Yeah, 
So like I say, everything's connected. Yeah, I, I really love that. Um, I was turned on to your work um, by my friend John D. Lindsay Jr., who's part of our TVCU crew, and, um, and I, I told him I would name drop him to you because he's a huge fan as well. And, well, uh, hi to him. And he gave me these... Uh, these annotations when I was writing uh, my horror crossover encyclopedia, um, y- your work turns up a lot in that um, be- because of all the crossovers. And, uh, <laughs> and, and it was just like pages and pages of annotations of, of all the different crossovers. I mean, clearly you're a Doctor Who fan. <laughs> clearly you're a Lovecraft fan. Uh, oh, clearly. I started out with the very first Doctor Who. I saw it when I was eight years old back in 1963. I missed the very first Dalek story. I hadn't seen that, but suddenly everybody in my school was being Daleks, and I thought, I'm missing out on something. And I started watching Doctor Who with The Keys of Mariners, which is another Terry Nation script, mm-hmm. and it was a wonderfully spooky show. And I thought, right, I like this. This is the good stuff. And I don't think I missed a Doctor Who episode since. I absolutely love it. It's come back again, and it's still really good. I'm still watching it, still enjoying it. Yeah. Um... I've just really loved how your work interconnects. Um, and um, so did you, from the beginning, have that mythology planned out, um, the connection between the Druids and the Nightside and, and the and Shadows Fall and all, all these different worlds? Or, or was it something that kind of evolved over time? It kind of grew almost without me noticing it through the early books. Um, I think it's fair to say, when people ask me how much do I plot in advance, I always say I do extensive plotting, but I always leave room for happy accidents, for things to surprise me. A character will come in that I think of as just going to be there to swell a scene, and suddenly he's he's there on stage and won't get off, and he ends up (laughs) appearing in more books as we go on. A good example would be in the Deathstalker series, uh, the reporter Toby Shrek and his cameraman Flynn, Mm. I brought him in for one scene, and he ended up being in all five books. I couldn't get rid of him. Sometimes a character will start out in one series and end up in another. Razor Eddie, the punk god of the straight razor, originally appeared in a Hawk and Fisher book. But when I was writing the first Nightside book some years later, I needed a character. I suddenly remembered him. I thought, yes, he fits here. And he became a major part of the Nightside. But I think what really brought it all together was writing Shadows Fall, which I still think is the best thing I ever did. Didn't sell worth a damn, but what can you do? Um, Shadows Fall had what I thought was a really great high concept. Shadows Fall is a small town in the back of beyond where legends go to die when the world stops believing in them, a kind of elephant's graveyard for the supernatural. And of course, People have believed in all kinds of weird stuff down the years, and they all ended up in this one place. And, pardon me, as I was writing that book, suddenly all kinds of things were coming together. There were fantasy elements, horror elements, science fiction elements, spy elements, the lot. They all came together. And I suddenly realized that different genres don't have to be separate, that if you put them together you actually end up with something that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. And having written that, I suddenly thought, right, everything fits, everything connects. Right, we can put, let's bring this character in, let's put that character there. Um, it's, it's often quite difficult to remember where a character first 
appeared without going back and check. <laughs> I think I'm right in saying that Ruin Bear and the Seagoat, who were an awful lot of fun, first appeared in Shadows Fall, then appeared in Deathstalker, then appeared in The Night Side, then appeared in Secret Histories. I can't get rid of them. They just keep coming back because <laughs> they're such fun to write. What, 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 what I, as a reader, appreciate about that is um, it's a payoff for, for, for fans who read more than one series. Yeah, I think in, in many ways it's almost like Easter eggs on a DVD. Right. They're yeah. there. If, if you know what I'm talking about, it's an extra bit. If you don't know, it doesn't matter. The right. characters are there for a reason. They're part of the plot. But they also connect to other things. And you get that little extra buzz if you know what I'm talking about. And, and you have tons of Easter eggs in your, in, your, in your books. Oh, yes. I keep thinking at one point we're going to have to do annotated editions. There could be one page of text and then one page of just connections. <laughs> I would pay for that. Yeah. Oh, cool. I'm, sure, I'm sure we missed, we missed a lot when we, were, when we tried to uh, find all the connections. I'm, I, I'm sure we absolutely <laughs> missed still a lot of them. Uh, keep asking. You never know. Yeah. One of the things I, uh, one of the things I, I love... When I was writing the horror crossover encyclopedia, um, I was going off of a, a theory from um, a group called Monsta uh, that um, said that all, all the Frankenstein stories, all the different versions existed. And up to that point, it was just a theory. And then I started reading your work um, when I was doing my research. And here you had a karaoke bar with all the Frankenstein monsters. <laughs> and I was I mean, like, now it's canon. It's my heart now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I was like, it's canon now, and it, it's just just those wonderful moments. Because you know, with the night side, it's one of those places that, for a stranger, it'd be a really scary place to visit. But for somebody who's comfortable and been there for a long time, it would be a really fun place. I guess I would say it would be a fun place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. Yeah. Yeah, like just... I, said, I, I did the piece with the spawn of Frankenstein, which turned up in Secret History, mm. which actually came out from, I was reading a book, um, I think it was called It's Alive by Gregory Mank, which was a wonderful overview of all the 1930s and 40s Frankenstein movies. And there was a piece in it where he talked about the fact that there actually was a real Baron Frankenstein, there actually was a real castle of Frankenstein overlooking the Rhine River, the ruins of which are still there. And I thought, well, what a wonderful place for Frankenstein's creations to actually go back to and hold their meetings. And then I thought, well, what if somebody has actually got there and kicked them out and they were trying to get back? And suddenly I got a plot going. And then once I got the spawn of Frankenstein, I brought the bride in, and then the right. bride turned out to have a, a boyfriend who was spring Jack. And like I said, one thing just leads to another. And they turned up in Spawn of Frank. They turned up, Spawn of Frankenstein turned up in Secret Histories. They turned up in The Night Side. I keep thinking at some point I'm going to have to do some stories just about The Bride and Jack because they're almost like the perfect television show. She was the spawn of strange science. <laughs> he was the inheritor of a Victorian horror story. Together, they're private eyes. <laughs> I would read that. that I would read TV that. Show? <laughs> I would watch that. That would be a great TV show. <laughs> So at some point, I'm going to have to do some stories about them. <laughs> Absolutely. That'd be great. So I was wondering about thought processes. Can I just tell you, I had a great idea. Yeah. I thought for the perfect TV show, Jesus Christ, Private Eye. Nice. Through the mean streets of Jerusalem, a man must go who is not mean. Every week, Jesus tracks <laughs> down the bad guys and forgives them. 
Wouldn't that be great? That's brilliant. That actually would. That's brilliant. It'll never happen, but you live, we live in hope. Right. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, I was wondering about the what was it? Karnacki Institute and how you came to discover William Hope Hodgson's Karnacki. I read the original Karnacki stories by William Hope Hodgson right back in the 70s when I was in London. Um, and I absolutely loved the stories. They're still some of the best spooky um, psychic investigator stories ever written. Definitely. Um, and when the time came that I wanted to do ghost stories, um, it came out of, I'm a huge fan also of M.R. James, who wrote the best ghost stories ever. And there were a series of television adaptations. Uh, the BBC did them as Ghost Stories for Christmas, and they were wonderful pieces. But M.R. James wrote stories set in the 20s and 30s, and I said, well, I'd like to do something like that, but set in the modern day. Not have ghost stories set in old manor houses or country homes, but in, in modern day settings. So when I wrote the first uh, Ghost Finders novel, uh, Ghost of a Chance, it was about a haunting in the London underground system. And I thought, right, I want to have an actual organization whose job it is to investigate hauntings. And it just seemed obvious the best ghost stories ever were Karnaki stories. Let's have a shout out and call it the Karnaki Institute. And again, I was off and running. Okay. And let's see, what else do I have that I definitely wanted to ask you about? Okay. One of the things that's really fascinated me about your work since forever is the way you wind your theory and legends into it. Now, since this is a major spoiler, I'm not going to say, but particularly in, I'm blanking, Drinking Midnight Wine and in the Nightside series, the last few novels. So I know in one of your... It's one of those things, Arthurian legendary, it's always been there, as far back as I remember, there have been any number of variations, any number um, from from the strict historical versions. There was an old television series called Arthur of the Britons, starring Oliver Tobias, which I remember seeing again back in the 70s, I think, which was a purely historical take. On the other hand, you had something like Excalibur, that wonderful film from the 80s, which was a, a really odd mystical version. You had David Drake's wonderful novel, The Dragon Lord, which was a kind of almost steampunk Celtic fantasy. The Arthurian legend lends itself to any variation you, you can think of. And I just thought it's almost the basis of British mythology everything ties back to it so i started introducing a bit here and a bit there and what again it was a case of once it came in i couldn't get rid of it it just kept popping up here and popping up there you had merlin of course in in the night side who's been dead for centuries but it hasn't stopped him taking an interest um the knights turned up in the secret histories and of course at one point i just thought right that's it Arthur's going to have to come back. And I brought him back. I think it was one of the most fun things I had doing was just bringing the return of Arthur. Absolutely. Yeah, that was really fun. And speaking of mythology, um, I'm going to go to theology. And, um, you know, one of, one of the best things was when you brought up um, uh, uh, Lilith as being the mother and, like, 
behind the night side and all, and all that stuff. And uh, and then you brought the agents of God who like just like destroyed like Cthulhu like type like Lovecraftian creatures like like with a snap of their finger type of stuff. Uh, did you find that uh, that um, you got some some horror inspiration from um, some from uh, Judeo Christian uh, theology? Yeah, I was I was brought up as um, a Protestant Christian, uh, Church of England. Mm. Uh, lost my faith for a while and then got it back again. Uh, basically, when I started writing the Night Side, okay, let's be honest here. It started out as a joke. I said that uh, our hero John Taylor, his father abandoned him after finding out his mother wasn't actually human. Mm. And that was it. It was a joke. Right. For the first book. But then I, because it was only ever written as a one-off, but um, I handed it in, and my editor said, actually, we could use a couple more. I thought, yeah, great, fine. And as I kept going, I thought, well, actually, you know, I keep dropping these hints that there's a background to this, that, that there's something important going on, there's a connection. And as I went through the books, I thought, well, I've got to decide who his mother is. And I went through about half a dozen different answers, all of which I actually referenced along the way. <clears throat> and then I read a, an interview with Neil Gaiman, who was talking about the fact that when he was younger, he was introduced to the Kabbalah, the book of Jewish mysticism, in which it's made clear that if you go right back to the Torah and, and to the original Jewish uh, mystical background, Eve wasn't Adam's first wife. She was his third. Firstly, God gives, creates uh, a woman exactly the way he created Adam. He creates Lilith, and she's his equal. But she refuses to bow down to Adam's natural male authority, so she gets kicked out. So, secondly, God creates a woman to replace Lilith, but he makes the mistake of creating a bit by bit in front of Adam, so he sees all the bits and pieces being put together, and he really can't take this seriously, so she has to leave as well. So finally, he, he puts Adam to sleep, takes a rib, and creates Eve, and that's where we start in Genesis. And I thought, that's great. Lilith, hmm, interesting. And the more I research Lilith, she's been around in various different mythologies, in Christian mythology, Jewish mythology, turns up in various story cycles. I thought, yes, I need a background here. And suddenly, everything started to click together. Quite often I'll find this, that I'll, I'll, I'll introduce things into my stories, and it's not till I look back that I realize, yes, that gives me that, this ties in with that, this explains that. And it looks like I knew what I was doing all along. Not always the case. But in this case, uh, particularly when I was doing the second book, uh, Agents of Light and Darkness, I wanted to do something specific with angels because, let me see, when were I writing this? This would have been the 90s. There was a big thing going on in American culture about angels, that they were guardian angels, there were um, angels who looked over you, and they were these sweet, lovely... No. If you look at the Bible, angels were badass. Angels were God's right. stormtroopers. When you wanted a city destroyed, he sent an angel. When you wanted the firstborn of a generation wiped out, he sent an angel. They are God's will made manifest on earth. 
this idea that angels from above and below, from heaven and hell, would come to the night side looking for the unholy grail, which is the cup that Judas drank from at the Last Supper. Now, I thought that was such an obvious thing that it must be part of Christian culture. No, apparently I made this up. <laughs> I was astonished. But yeah. it, just, it just seemed perfect that angels would come looking for this, and when they came, both of them would be equally frightening. And I worked on that, and it just, again, it just flowed, and I just kept writing, and more and more, it just absolutely produced what I think is one of the best books in the series. Mm-hmm. I'm actually not surprised that you reclaimed your faith because years and years ago, that particular Nightside novel was on the possible list of books you could read in a Christian book club. <laughs> Did you ever read the short story I wrote called Jesus and Dayton Go Jogging in the Desert? I don't believe so, no. No, no. Okay, it's in my collection, um, Tales from the Hidden World. It, I wrote this, um, well, I had the idea a long time ago. Uh, it came from the idea that the idea of Jesus in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and he's tempted by the devil. And I had the idea to write that, but written in the, sto- in the style of the odd couple. <laughs> and then I couldn't think, who the hell am I going write, to write this for? Who's going to buy this? So I put the idea on one side. And then Christopher Golden emailed me, a wonderful writer, and he was doing uh, an anthology that he was in editing. And he wanted to do stories written from the view of the bad guy. And I thought, great, this is it. And I wrote the story. And it essentially was this wonderful story of Satan coming up to tempt Jesus, but written, you know, almost that they were, that they were friends, they were the odd couple, that they had more in common than they had against each other. And it was Jesus and Satan go jogging in the desert. <laughs> And I've read it a couple huh. of times at conventions, and people just sit there with their jaws dropping open. It's, it's great fun. Give it a try. You'll love I'm it. I'm going to seek that out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's in the collection Tales from the Hidden World from Open Media. Okay. Cool. Speaking of shameless plugs, do you have anything you want to say about the Judas Ghost movie? Okay, Judas Ghost. Um, this came, it's the first film that I've had produced from, from one of my screenplays. And this came about because down the years, an awful lot of people have expressed an interest in my work, but nobody had ever actually made anything, no television, no film. I thought, right, let's actually do something. And I was reading uh, an article in Empire magazine about a a low-budget British horror movie called Outpost, which is a wonderfully spooky little film. And they were saying it had been made for some quite low budget. Now, as it turned out, they were not being actually accurate. It cost rather more than that. But I looked at the amount and said, damn it, I could raise that. So I wrote a screenplay. And a friend of mine, his daughter, was going out with a television director who was looking for his first film project. So he put the two of us together. That was Simon Pierce, And we got on like a house on fire. We really loved the same kind of stuff. I showed him the screenplay I'd written, and he, and he loved it. But when we costed it, it would have cost about two to three million, which was simply beyond anything I could raise. So he said to me, we need something smaller, something that we can do for the money you've got. So I thought, right. And I sat down, and I thought, five characters in one room. That brings the budget down. 
and I had this idea. There's something called the Judas Goat, which is a trained goat, which is kept at slaughterhouses, which was there to lead the other animals in so they wouldn't panic. Because once they're inside, they all got killed, and the Judas Goat was taken away to wait for the next lot. So I thought, what if a team of ghost finders from my Karnaki Institute came in to look for, for what they thought was a standard haunting, but it was just there to lure them in. Something much worse was waiting behind it, and it was the Judas Ghost. And once I started writing, it absolutely just poured out of me. Because having five characters in one room concentrates your attention wonderfully. You can use the claustrophobia, you can concentrate on the characters, the dialogue, and it just, I won't say it wrote itself, but it literally just one thing just leapt to the next thing to the next thing. And I showed Simon Pierce this screenplay, he said, this is fantastic, this is what we're going to do. And so basically I took my savings and that paid for the film. We got a professional director, uh, professional cameraman, we had an entirely professional cast, and it turned out to be an absolutely wonderful film. The, the, the actors really went, went for it. When I saw the finished film, I said to the director, look, you've made the film I wanted to see. That was the best compliment I could pay. That's beautiful. But this was about two and a half years ago. I wasn't involved with it much myself. Having written it, I handed it over to him. At the time, I was ill and had been for some time, and I couldn't quite figure out why. It turned out, when I eventually went to the doctor, that I had mature diabetes. And basically, I'd been getting ill and then getting better over and over for months. And of course, it was my blood sugar going up and down. Once I was diagnosed, I essentially cut all the sugar out of my diet, policed my food carefully. I lost three and a half stone in three weeks. I crashed wow. my blood sugar back to normal and I've kept it there ever since. So I don't have to take insulin, but I do have to continue policing my food. But I wasn't able to actually get involved in the making of the film, which is something I, I really regret. But it turned out a wonderful film. We tried to get it into, into the cinemas and they wouldn't let us in. They won't let you in unless you're part of one of the big chains, one of the big companies, and the chains and company basically ah. don't want to let you in. We tried for over two years, we had a perfectly good film, we were getting meetings, we were getting really good feedback, it did um, lots of conventions, it won awards, but we couldn't get it into the cinema. So in the end, we basically said to hell with it, directed DVD, the minute we said that, within a few months we had a deal, it's out on a British disc already, it'll be out on an American disc, end of the year, beginning of next year. Awesome. Fine. That's the news I've been waiting for. I've been excited for this for so long. There is, um, if you go on YouTube, there's a trailer and a making off to give you a taste of it. Nice. Well, I'm glad you're doing better now, because I've heard reports about ill health. Yeah, for a while I was very very bad i mean they actually said but the doctor actually said to my face there's no way you're going to be able to control this by just doing it changing your diet you're going to need insulin but basically i proved it wrong and i couldn't be happier i am a lot better now thanks with some water touch yes there we go glad to hear that 
Um, so I'm seeing from my producer that we are running out of time. Uh, so okay. before we wrap up, and man, I, I, I wish this was like a two-hour, three-hour show because I could just keep <laughs> listening to you. Uh, and I hope we have you back s- sometime. Uh, yeah, I'd love to come it, back. It, it was awesome to have you on our premiere episode. Uh, uh, is there anything else uh, current or, or upcoming you'd like to plug uh, before we wrap up? Yeah, I would say I've got a new series that I'm writing at the moment, which for the moment, is only available in British editions. It's a new series. It's essentially Agatha Christie-style murder mysteries, but with fantasy and science fiction elements. Uh-huh. The first one's oh. out. It's called Dark Side of the Road. It's from Bob Dylan, where if you're going <laughs> right. to be um, an outlaw, you have to drive on the dark side of the road. And it's, it's literally a good old-fashioned Agatha Christie Christmas-setting murder mystery. And it's, I had such fun writing it. it. It's a really good murder mystery in its own right, but it has fantasy elements as well. The second one, I've just handed it in, is called um, Dead Man Walking, and I'm just working on the third one at the moment, Very Important Corpses. Um, it's only available at the moment from a British publisher, Seven House, but we're looking for an American publisher at the moment, so hopefully next year there will be American editions. In the meantime, buy the British editions. I need the money. Yeah. I, I know a guy, so I can probably get him beforehand. Uh, is there any uh, website, social media you would like uh, people to check out for your updates? Yeah, just put my name into your search engines. I've got my own site. It'll yeah. take you to it. And it's, it's, I've got a friend of mine who runs it for me. I'm looking now and again just to keep him honest. It's a really good site. Yeah. If you Google Simon R. Green, you can find him like immediately, I have found. And um, also our website also has a link to um, his, his main uh, website. Uh, for the cool. listeners out there, um, oh, Simon, thank you so much. You yes, know, thank you so much. You know, when we were coming up with who we wanted for a guest, you were like at the top of the list, and and we <laughs> we had we had an aim high, expect low, and uh, I was I was when you when I was panicked when when I heard back from your assistant like that you were going to do it because I'm like oh now I have to be good. <laughs> <laughs> really, that's what I was thinking too. <laughs> so, thank you, thank you so much, Simon. Uh, so glad to be here. Thank you so much, and uh, we will be back in a moment. Sometimes I got to remember to cue the producer here because I really dig this music we have. <laughs> um, oh yeah! So uh, uh, we don't have much time left over, but I, I really want to spend a few minutes to gush about like my fanboy moment of just talking to Simon R. Green um, <laughs> yes. for our first episode. It's all downhill from here. Uh, <laughs> but, oh, man, that, 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 was, that was awesome. And he, has no, he, he, he had absolutely no idea how much, how much I've written about him <laughs> and his, taking notes and stuff. That, it was amazing. Uh, so, yeah. James, before we wrap up, do you have any final thoughts? On Simon R. Green? Yeah. Um, that was really fantastic, and I would love to have him on again in the future. And if he had a podcast, I would listen to it every week. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, He I, just has fascinating stories, plus with that great English voice. Yeah. You can't top that. I felt bad having to cut him off, but we have to maintain the time for the show. Oh, it was I like I could have just kept listening to him. 
Uh, so everybody, if you haven't read Simon R. Green, even if you're if you're like, oh, I don't like horror or anything, you know, it's like he said, uh, it, he he really crosses all these different genres. Yeah. In such an amazing Plus, way. We didn't really get to get into it, but if you don't like horror, that's fine. He writes in multiple genres. If you like yeah. sci-fi, please check out Deathstalkers. Absolutely. Love. You like um, sci-fi, not sci-fi. Forgive me. If you like secret Asian stories, check out his secret histories. Yeah. If uh, you like things like Neil Gaiman's Sandman, by all means, check out Shadows Fall or Drinking Midnight Wine. Hawk and Fisher, Sword and Sorcery type of yes. type of stuff. Yeah, he, he, he's really amazing, and he really does it across all the genres. And, it, and it's clear that he's a fanboy, too. Um, and I, I say fanboys make the best writers. When you're a fan of the work, the genre you're working in, you know, it, it really shows. It's true. They um, should really get him to write an episode of Doctor Who. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Why hasn't that happened yet? Uh yeah, I mean, he clearly knows the history of the the thing. Every single one of his books from every one of his series that I have read has had a Doctor Who reference. So that's true. Yeah, and a Lovecraft reference. Always a Doctor Who, always a Lovecraft. Um, so unfortunately, that's all the time we've got for this episode. Um, please join us next week uh, when we will be talking with Eric Burnham. Who is Eric Burnham? He is only the writer of IDW's Ghostbusters, um, which is... And IDW's Back to the Future. And, uh, and IDW's Back to the Future. Thank you. And he's also done some amazing uh, crossovers. He cro- uh, TMNT uh, and Ghostbusters. Uh, he did the amazing crossover between Ghostbusters and real Ghostbusters, which I didn't even think w- should be a crossover, but he did it. Uh, yeah, he's just amazing, and, and I'm going to gush when he comes on the show, too. Um, so before we end, uh, I want to spank, uh, thank our sponsors. <laughs> yeah, he got that. <laughs> thank our sponsors, uh, Jim Payton, um, uh, through our GoFundMe, um, paying for some of the studio fees. Jim Payton um, um, helped put forward money for this epi- episode. And I'd also like to thank Oceanic Airlines. They only get lost once in a while. And a special thanks to uh, Tiny White and the Deadites for our show's theme music. Thanks to all who have listened to our show today. And remember, everything happens somewhere. And we are out.